Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. In each episode of Saga Thing, we choose a saga, explore its story, and judge the actions of its characters at The Saga Thing. Welcome back, John. Ah, it's nice to be here. Mm -hmm. As we've been uh, grappling manfully with the end of the semester chaos, Andy's impending move to Mississippi, and our annual pilgrimage to Kalamazoo for the Medieval Studies Conference... We've gone a little while without recording together, haven't we? Ah, it's just water under the bridge, though. <laughs> and, well, it gave us a chance to release that interview with Kat Jarman uh, that, uh, you know, we, we enjoyed and we wanted to share with you all. We've got some Absolutely. other stuff up our sleeves as well. But, uh, but hey, it's t- high time we return to the third quarter of our trawl through the family sagas. Very slow trawl. And, uh, <laughs> yes, and we've got a brand new story in this episode. Yes, Kjalnasinga Saga. Kjalnasinga Saga. The famous Kjalnasinga Saga. <laughs> You're just stalling now. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm trying to give people a chance to pause the podcast while they read the saga. It's not that long. Uh-huh. Uh, well, in case some people are planning to listen to this straight away, uh, how about a quick overview? Uh, fine. Personally, though, I, I think we should uh, be encouraging people to read these things. But uh, if you want to, <laughs> them to listen to a short summary, here you go. Across the bay from Reykjavik lies the district of Gjallarnes. Settled by Helgi Bjorlund, son of the famous Kettleflappers. A generous man, Helgi welcomed many men and women into Kjallarnes, providing them with land and the opportunity to make a new life for themselves in Iceland. Among these early settlers was a group of Irish Christians, most notably a strong young man named Andri, who settled at Hof, a wealthy widow called Esja, who took possession of property at Eschiburg, and a man named Corley was given Corlafjord. This is the story of the settlers of Kjallarnes and the conflicts that arose between them. It begins with the swearing of blood brotherhood between the sons of Helgi Bjollan, Thorgrim and Arngrim, and the Irish Christian Andri. But the harmony found in this first generation of settlers doesn't extend to the second. When Thorgrim becomes a Gothi, he and his son Thorstein watch carefully to see who attends the sacrifices to Thor at the temple and who does not. Their stern gaze is soon drawn to a young man named Bua, son of Andrin, who feels that prostrating himself to Thor and making sacrifices is beneath him. Raised by his foster mother Essia, who some believe is a witch, Bua has a mind of his own and a strong will that will certainly lead to trouble. In addition to these mounting religious pressures in this second generation, social tensions are also on the horizon as competition for the hand of Olaf, the stunning daughter of Corley, heats up. With three men chasing after her, Olaf finds herself in the awkward position of having too many choices and no voice of her own. Unfortunately for her, the man she prefers isn't the one her father has chosen for her. As you can see, there's plenty of drama here for everyone as Saga Thing takes on the first half of Kjolnesinga Saga. Well, I'm sold. Yeah, but this is, well, it's probably fair to say that this is not an especially well-known saga. (laughs) That's a very nice way of putting it. I think you could also use the words obscure Mm -hmm. and little red without fear of contradiction. Well, I mean, it does seem... Andy, if I may, I'd like to read the entire English language Wikipedia page entry for Kjalnasinga Saga. Well, I'm going to say that it's not really fair to go to Wikipedia for good information on these, but (laughs) all right. What does it say? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think we can. I think we can do this though. The entry reads: <clears throat> Kjalnasinga Saga is one of the sagas of Icelanders. The end. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is succinct, very well put, and technically accurate. Yeah, it's best to stick what, to the facts. What's your complaint? <laughs> well, in this case, the fact is that English language audiences really don't engage with this saga at all. Well, let's see. Stefan Anderson, in his book-length study of Icelandic literature, devotes about how many words to Kjalnasinga Saga? Ah, uh, mm. well, here it is. One. One words. One word. One words. <laughs> but yeah, the word is antiquarian. <laughs> well, at least it's a long word. Yes, yes, and it fits the pattern. Mm-hmm. I mean, no one seems to have much to say about this saga except to acknowledge that it's it's drawing heavily on older stories, and I mean, people sometimes point out the foreign literary traditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the medieval Scandinavia encyclopedia, Tommy Danielson calls Kalnasinga an eclectic work of art. There are a number of borrowings from other written sources, a large quantity of revised motifs from other Islendingasogr, and quite a lot of romantic material of a kind often to be found in the Fernaldosogr and the Ridorosogr. So, the legendary and chivalric sagas, you say? Yeah. Now, have you noticed that saga scholars often seem to use the word romantic as a slightly condescending insult when they're talking uh, yes. about family <laughs> sagas especially? <laughs> I mean, ultimately, what Danielson is saying in so many words is antiquarian. <laughs> Yep, I, at least Jonas Christensen uh, offers a bit of an evaluation of the saga, um, which we always a love. Bit. He says, The author was a man who was thoroughly familiar with the district which forms the background to his story. He was well-read in older sagas and borrowed from them, but he also drew on local tradition lore which he linked to his imaginary characters. Hmm. The saga, And that's true, he says that of almost every single saga. but I mean, it's fair, yeah. The saga, he says, is essentially a pastiche. He finds evidence of borrowing from Erbidja Saga, Fosbrother Saga, and Orvar Odd Saga, uh-huh. which is one of the legendary sagas. Um, but he also mentions the old High German and Irish sources as well. Right. So the consensus, if we can say that about, you know, a one-word review and then a, a short paragraph, is that this is a self-consciously literary work. Mm. It's drawing on multiple written and oral traditions that span across Northern Europe. Ah, see, now that makes it sound kind of good, doesn't it? Right. So what's the problem? Well, I mean, maybe there isn't one. Maybe this is a hidden gem that we're going to share with everyone. (laughs) Yeah, it's very, very hidden. Get your pickaxe. If anybody wants to play the Saga Thing home game, there are a couple of English language translations of Kjalnasinga Saga available. Uh, And of course, there's also the Icelandic original. We're going to be quoting from the Robert Cook and John Porter translation. And in that Icelandic original, how does this saga stack up against our Hoffenkel's measurement? That's an important thing. Yeah, well, like several of our recent sagas, this one comes in at a tidy 1.2 Hrovenkels. Mm, that does seem to be a popular length these days. Yeah, it's kind of the sweet spot. Uh, and even though this isn't all that long, we're going to be splitting it into two episodes. Uh, partly because we're feeling a bit self-indulgent, and partly because with Andy moving house this week, we wanted to get something recorded before he heads to Mississippi. In fact, uh, you may hear a little bit of an echo on Andy's side because he's now sitting in a very empty house. Yes, my bookshelves are empty. <laughs> I don't know They're that I'll ever have their... a home office or, yeah. or a library oh. in my house again. Oh. I'm just... Well, we'll build you a shed out back. Very sad. A shealing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this time out, we're just going to tackle the first half of the saga. And with any luck, we'll have Andy's new recording studio sorted out <laughs> and have the second half up in a couple of weeks. I, I predict my new recording studio will be the closet off the bathroom <laughs> in my very tiny <laughs> rental house. <laughs> but uh, Maybe just in the bathroom. You can just do it from the tub. Well, there'll be a lot of echo in there. 
<laughs> but uh, in the meantime, let's dig in, shall we? Part one, the settling of Kellerness. Okay, so to get started on this saga, we should explain something. I'm hoping we're going to explain a few things, uh, but <laughs> could you be slightly more vague? Silence. Hmm. Um, so there's a central figure named Bua Andredson in the story, but overall, this is really more of a regional saga. Which means we're going to be starting by meeting a, a whole lot of people. Kind of, yeah. Uh, the saga introduces a whole lot of people, mostly a shipload of settlers from the first generation of settlers. But we're going to be focusing in on just a couple here at the outset. But there are so many to choose from. Sorry. Uh, we're looking at the ship's captain, Helgi Bjolin, the son of Kettle Bjornsson. Kettle Bjornsson. Yeah. You mean Kettle Flatnose, king yes. of the Southern Isles. <laughs> yes. Although you're making him sound like a bad fantasy novel. <laughs> king of the Southern Isles. Uh we, we met Helgi's family way back in Erbijasaga. Uh, they're a big deal among the settlement generation. Uh, Helgi's got famous siblings. They include Bjorn the Easterner and Al the Deep-Minded. Uh, his sister Thorin also marries Olaf Peacock, and his nephew, Thorstein the Red, conquers a large part of Scotland in the late 9th century. And that's an impressive family photo. It and is. Helgi, Helgi's no slouch himself. He mm-hmm. lays claim to prime real estate in the southwest of Iceland, which he calls Kjallarnes. Mm-hmm. And he becomes an important regional power broker. And his land is very near to the modern city of Reykjavik. Right. So Helgi's right near the center of the action. Yeah. I mean, Reykjavik's nothing more than a farmstead in the 9th century, but right, the yeah. all thing is fairly nearby. And exactly. there's good beachfront land uh, for Helgi's farm. So it's a good, well, good situation. I mean, yeah. You want the beachfront property. That's a given. Mm, absolutely you do. I mean, that's how you get beached whales. And a tan. <laughs> sure. Helgi's also a generous <laughs> guy who the text describes as... A very helpful man who followed the old religion, although he rarely made sacrifices, and he was wise and gracious to all. So he parcels out a great deal of land to his friends, who sail to Iceland with him. Now he sounds like a sweet fella. Doesn't he? And several of his friends get land from him and name it after themselves. Yeah, uh, one of the few things Christensen says about this saga is that the author is indeed an enthusiastic inventor of people named after farms in the area. (laughs) Well, he's not wrong. I mean, we get a man named Thrawn settling at Thronstaller, Hawking at Hawkingsdal, uh, Kali at Kolafjord, and so on. Yeah, I think we can skip most of them for now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most important point is that all these settlers produce a second and third generation that are going to be at the center of our story. When does uh, Ricky show up? Ricky? Yeah, Ricky, Rickyvik? Rickyvik? Hmm? Rick, Rick, yeah. <laughs> I know. It's just a joke, people. Smoky Bay. Smoky. I'm, I'm aware. So you're looking for a guy named Smoky? I was I was just going with Old the, Smoky. the name and thing. I guess I shouldn't include that now. No, no. <laughs> uh, right. So in terms of that second and third generation, Helgi has two sons, Thor, Thorgrim and Arngrim, who are important men in the district. Now, Thorgrim is the older son, and he eventually becomes a Gothi, a chieftain. Mm-hmm. Another settler, Andrid, is their close friend. These three men become blood brothers and settle on neighboring farms. Mm -hmm. And a fair amount of the dramatic tension of this story comes from the competition between their sons. Right, but that's later. Mm -hmm. Uh, For my money, the really interesting settler comes along a few years after Helgi. His name is Orlig. Already he's interesting. Orlig. Orlig. Yeah, he's Irish. And Christian. Well, that's no excuse for his name. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably important to say again that this saga takes place in the early 10th century. Helgi Mm -hmm. and his family are part of that settlement generation. Sure. So 
What's an Irish Christian doing in Kjallarnes? You, know, <laughs> you say it like that, it sounds like the setup to a joke. <laughs> it's not, but uh, if you have a punchline, please go for it. Uh, no. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> and Orlich isn't actually doing much of anything at all. He sailed to Iceland on the advice of his kinsman, Bishop Patrick, in Ireland. Now he's just settling in, getting to know the neighborhood, building a church and dedicate, dedicating it to St. Columba. You know, the usual stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I thought was interesting is the uh, when when um, Bishop Patrick describes mm-hmm. to Orlick how to find the land, he describes mm-hmm. three mountains. Um, and when you find them, do this and that. Oh, if, you, yep. if you go on to uh, you know, Google Maps or if you go to uh, Emily Lethbridge's uh, Saga Maps mm-hmm. project, uh, it's pretty fairly accurate description of exactly where Kjallarnes is. Well, there you go, which so, uh, lends a lot of credence to the idea that, there's, that the Irish knew of Iceland before the Norwegians got there. Or it lends credence to the idea that the author in the 14th century has a pretty good idea what Iceland looks like. I mean, what's interesting is that it suggests that the Icelandic author is crediting the Irish with knowing about yeah. um, Iceland and having a pretty clear idea of how to get there mm-hmm. in the early 10th century, which is interesting. Well, one of the questions is going to be whether we believe that or not, but I right, suppose we should, we should delay that. <laughs> so, well, so the saga just goes ahead and says that there's an Irish Christian church in Iceland already, which is, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the 10th century, almost a century before the conversion of Iceland, I guess, yes. you know, it's worth addressing yeah. that. Yes to all of that. Uh, but when we talked about Christianity in Iceland, we did say that there were probably Christians living there before the Norwegian missionaries start showing up. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the tradition. Um, but I, I think most people forget this was here. Well, we're not most people, Andy. I'm just saying we didn't bring it up at the time. Fair. Tough but fair. Mm. Uh, all right. So we're bringing it up now. Now what? Well, I mean, for one thing, this suggests that the Celtic influence on Iceland wasn't as limited as scholars sometimes argue. But does that assume what you were just saying, right, that this saga offers some kind of a verifiable history? No, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, we haven't gotten to Orlik's story yet, which is partly because he hasn't got one. Uh, He isn't really all that important to the saga narrative. Mm -hmm. To me, that just suggests that his story isn't a device of the author's. Hmm. Um, But that doesn't also necessarily make it true. Uh, I guess what we could say is it suggests that the author, the saga author, thinks of Mm -hmm. Orlik as being part of the background of his story. Right. So in other words, this reflects at least a 14th century belief that Celtic Christians were making their way to Iceland in the century before Iceland's conversion. That's certainly an interpretation. Uh, doesn't have to be a uh, uh, 14th century Iceland's uh, belief, but a 14th century mm-hmm. individual trying to sell right. that narrative. Right. Yep. Uh, all right. I'll admit the evidence to the jury. Uh, I was actually more interested in the Columba connection. Mm. Yeah. Since this is a podcast, we should be clear about what you're saying here. Uh, mm-hmm. That's Columba, the Celtic missionary saint, not Columbo, uh, the television <laughs> detective. <laughs> yes. Obviously. <laughs> uh, Columba was a 6th century Irishman who undertook a proselytizing mission to the Hebrides in Scotland. He's generally credited with beginning what would become a long and somewhat disorganized effort to convert the Hebridians and the Scots to Christianity. To follow your logic, Columbo, on the other hand, is a delightful ragamuffin gumshoe who pursued justice in his ode idiosyncratic fashion. <laughs> and uh, just to be clear, uh, he didn't convert anyone. <laughs> no. <laughs> At this point, you're just trying to get a Peter Falk impression out of me. <laughs> I would say he he converted me into being into being a great fan of his work. There you go. There you go. So the point is that Columba was famous for his work bringing Christianity to the Hebrides. He was a missionary in one of the areas where Norsemen would end up during the ninth century, right? during that Norwegian diaspora. By that time, Columba was already regarded as a vital part of the story of the Christianization of the North. Mm-hmm. And now 
Here's the story of a late 9th century Christian Irish settler in Iceland who shows up and builds a church to Columba after being sent there by his bishop. Oh, by, so it's Columba by proxy. Yes. So this is a missionary story. It's a missionary story. Uh, but it's a dud because Orlik doesn't <laughs> convert people. In fact, most of the area is going to be really kind of adamantly pagan. Yeah, most of the area. But we should keep an eye on this because Orlik introduces a kind of Christian wild card into the story right away. And I think we're going to see it paying off in various ways in this story. All right. Excellent. But in the meantime, Orlik needs an ally in Iceland. Who's he going to see? Well, he's got one. Uh, Helgi Bjolin doesn't mind about the whole Christian thing. And he invites Orlik to live nearby. Which effectively puts Orlik under Helgi's protection. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And the two of them live near one another in friendship for years until Orlik has reached an old age. Now, when the second group of Irish settlers arrive, Orlik... The second group? Yes. The second group. Where where have all these Irish settlers in Iceland been hiding all this time? Well, in Kellerness, apparently. Ah. Uh, Orlik, who's now an old man, gives his farm to a widow named Esja. Andrid, who we mentioned earlier, settles near Helgi and his sons, and another Irishman, Colley, marries a local woman named Thorgird and settles in the area as well. They have a daughter named Olaf, who's going to be important later in the story. If your head's spinning listening to this, believe me, we sympathize. Yeah. But we're uh, going to keep going. Yeah, no, we, we've done all we can to boil this down to the essentials, but Kjallnessing Saga has an unusually thick introduction, and it's almost all about the area's settlement. So the basic version is that Andrid and uh, the Helgesons are friends and live near one another, while a widow named Esja and a man named Colley also settle in the area. Is that fair? Yes. Uh, Most of the Irish folk are baptized Christians, which might explain why they've shown up here. Mm -hmm. Word's gotten back in Ireland that there's a church dedicated to Columba in Iceland. And there is one possible exception. The widow, Estia, is rumored to know some witchcraft. Ah, but is she a good witch or a bad witch? Sorry, Glinda. We're going to have to wait and see. (laughs) So not long after the Irish group arrives, the Blood Brothers celebrate a double wedding. Andrid Mm -hmm. marries a local woman named Thurid. And Thorgrim marries Arndis Thor's daughter. Happiness abounds in Kjallarnes. Yes, but it doesn't last for very long. Oh, it never does. Now, mm-hmm. this is when the saga really starts to get interesting. Mm-hmm. Helgi Bjolin dies the winter after extending his friendship to the newly arrived Christians, and it soon becomes clear that his sons don't share their father's tolerant attitude toward the new arrivals. Hmm. Thorgrim Helgeson, in particular, is aggressively pagan. He builds a temple. <laughs> I like that phrase, aggressively pagan. <laughs> yeah. So he builds a temple to Thor, which is described in great detail, and he and his son Thorstein harass anyone in the area who's not willing to sacrifice to Thor. The description of this temple of Thorgrims is very impressive. Yeah, uh, the it, temple. It is, it, can I just interrupt you real quick? You it, certainly may. I've already done it. It's it's incredibly <laughs> impressive, as as everyone will hear in a moment. And mm-hmm. as you listen, think back to when we covered Erbidja Saga and yeah. how and if you've studied this stuff. Uh, how often people quote Erbidja Saga and yep. the description of the temple. Um, there's a vivid description of a temple here yep. and, and some of the practices that go with it. And yet no one no one mentions this at all. Is it because no, it's and 14th century or what's... I mean, I, that might be part of it. I think it's it also is part of about accessibility. I mean, yeah. Kjallnessinga Saga is simply not as widely read. Um, but, you know, when we were reading Erbidja Saga, we established that every element of that description is clearly being filtered through a Christian sensibility. Quite right. It's not as if Erbidja has a claim to greater authenticity. No. If anything, it's got you know a claim to being pretty thoroughly washed by a Christian mindset. 
Uh, not that this doesn't, no. but you certainly can't make a claim that Arabidja is a more accurate description. Right. Well, it's a less detailed description. Well, we, we saw another uh, big temple in um, Njal Saga when we went to Norway and we met. Absolutely, um, yeah. Who was it? What was that guy's name? Killerhav. Killerhav, yeah. Um, yeah, at that moment. Uh, we got another beautiful temple. Mm-hmm. That one was more kind of seemed like it was filtered through kind of a classical mm-hmm. Greek image than than yep. anything. Um, what about this um, one? What does this look like? Right. Well, yeah, we're talking about it, but we haven't actually told people about it. Uh, so the temple was a hundred feet long and sixty wide. It was rounded on the inside like a vault, and there were windows and wall hangings everywhere. The image of Thor stood in the center, with the other gods on both sides. In front of them was an altar made with great skill and covered with iron on top. On this, there was to be a fire that would never go out. They called it Sacred Fire. Now this is a serious temple. Hang on, I'm not finished. On the altar was a great armband made of silver. The temple Gothi was to wear it on his arm at all gatherings, and everyone was to swear oaths on it whenever a suit was brought. All right, hang on. I know there's something else coming up, but I want to talk about this for just a second. Okay. So what we're seeing here is another example of how the temples of Iceland doubled as spaces for assemblies or things. Right. Well, I mean, it's a logical double use of space, right? mm-hmm. since church and state aren't really supposed to be separated in most medieval contexts. Right, right. Yeah. That's it's right. even more important when neither the church nor the state is really centrally organized in any meaningful way, which is the case for pre-Christian Iceland. Yeah, of course. And we saw similar situations uh, set up in Droplogasana Saga and Erbeja and a couple others. The mm-hmm. the armoring, remember, that carries divine power into the realm of mundane legal affairs as well. Right. And those oaths are important, right? Oath swearing was an important part of the legal system. Mm-hmm. And Thorgrim's claim to primacy in the region is partly bound up in his control over the armoring and its aura of authority. Yeah, but those oaths over the armoring are a problem, aren't they? I mean, a mm-hmm. fair number of the area settlers are Irish Christians. So how can they swear oaths on an armoring in Thor's temple? And how can we trust them if they don't? Well, I mean, it's a very shiny ring, Andy. Well, I don't think that's the problem here. No. Uh, This is something that became a serious issue at the end of the 10th century, right? with pagan and Christian Icelanders declaring themselves out of law with each other. And a lot of the reason for that was the difficulty in agreeing to honor oaths made to the opposing group's god or gods. Mm -hmm. And now that's true of the medieval world in general, right? Sure. If we don't worship the same god, how can we trust each other? Because we have different rules. But uh, this saga is set in the early 10th century, but the author's introduction of Irish Christians into the narrative opens up some, uh, some of those same tensions. It's quite interesting. Well, and as it happens, that's not all that's getting opened up at the temple. Shall I read on? Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, go, go to the next part. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a great copper bowl also stood on the altar, and it caught the blood of the animals or men sacrificed to Thor. The blood was to be sprinkled over men and animals, and the animals given in sacrifice were then used for feasting when sacrificial feasts were held. Men who were sacrificed, on the other hand, were cast into a pool outside by the door. They call that the Well of Sacrifices. Ah, the Well of Sacrifices. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a place you'd end up at about two-thirds of the way through a sword and sorcery novel. <laughs> Does, actually. <laughs> Hear me, spell-slinging cacodemon! Oh, God. I have brought the five stones of Hagara here through the Carbian Wastes to the Well of Sacrifices. <laughs> now, Firespawn, I would have words with thee. <laughs> <sighs> Somehow I feel like that's not the first time you've given that speech. Well, I mean, there are a lot of stones of Hagartha or whatever I said. <laughs> yeah, like you don't know. 
<laughs> so, all right. If you're done uh, reliving your misspent youth of role-playing games, let's uh, let's move on. <laughs> Wait, are we just going to ignore the reference to human sacrifices? Oh, I mean, most scholars do. <laughs> I don't see why we should be any different here. <laughs> well, most scholars ignore the entire saga. That's no excuse. <laughs> well, I mean, this is one of those moments when we have to squint a bit at the text, I think. Uh, these authors are generally offering remarkably dispassionate stories of the past, but you don't... Well, nostalgic stories, at least. Sure. And they're not totally neutral about the past. No, that's true. But what I mean is that they do frequently treat the pagan past as semi-mythical, even within its historical context. Mm, that's fair. They're inventing much of what they say the pagans were and did, and that invention is filtered through several generations' worth of Christian perspective. No, I agree with that. Uh, the pagan past, and we've, I think we've talked about this before, at mm-hmm. least talk, talked around it. The pagan past is a place for imagination as much as oral legend. Sure. And each each author has a certain amount of leeway to remake pagan practice in whatever form it needs to be for the story at hand. So I guess the question is, is this a story primarily about religious change or about religious diversity? Mm. Well, in this case, we have an author whose story incorporates Christian and non-pagan communities at an earlier era than most sagas tend to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. And the differences between Christian and pagan are made more stark by the presence of human sacrifice here. So diversity, or at least contrast, seems to be the point. Mm. Yeah, a random aside here. Uh, in First Corinthians, Paul takes up the question of whether it's okay for Christians to attend pagan sacrifices and whether they can be part of those feasts that the saga author mentions happening afterward. Well, I mean, there's all that prime meat left over after animal sacrifices. It's really a shame to let it go to waste. <laughs> that's actually, that's not far from Paul's conclusion, actually. That's <laughs> logical. Uh, but the, the point is that those feasts, even in the New Testament, are different from the actual sacrifices. Right? Paul's dead against sacrificing as a Christian, but he essentially says that it's more kind of bad form to partake of the meat of the feast. It's just a bit of a social no-no. Mm-hmm. Kind of a faux pas, if you will. But right. in this case, the Christians, or at least Bua and Ezia, apparently refused to take part in any of the temple sacrifices. Right. So to return what we're ta- to what we're talking about, this is another part of the saga that feeds the author's religious sub-narrative. Yeah. It's not just the sacrifice story. There's a lot happening here. Religious identities are overlapping one another, mm-hmm. with spaces being claimed for pagan and Christian settlers. And it's not always a clear set of opposing forces. Yeah, those spaces are fairly fluid, aren't they? I mean, yeah. Orlik's style that is pagan under Helgi, then Christian under Orlik, and mm-hmm. now there's a witch living there who may alleged or may not be witch, Christian. Alleged witch. Not fair. Fair. Uh, but yes, I think that's the point. Um, notwithstanding the stuff about human sacrifices, this saga is actually offering a pretty nuanced view of pre-Christian Iceland. Yeah, I was surprised by that. Yeah, no, it's a, it's, it's a story in which a multi-faith community is living in relative harmony hmm. until someone decides to make religious affiliation an urgent issue. Okay, yeah, I'll buy that. You, the good qualification there. But why is this important for us? Well, because Thorgrim Helgeson and his son, Thorstein, are looking for a target to prove their religious and political clout in the area. And they find that target in a young local lad, Bua Andridesen, the son of Thorgrim's old friend, Andrid. Hmm. Part two. Bua the dog. Oof, oof. <laughs> All right. Now, at this point in the story, we're being introduced to three young men of the district. Mm-hmm. Thorstein Thorgrimson, who we've already met. Right. Uh, and also Bua Andridersen and Kolfin, the son of Thorgerd of Elidivaden. Oh, well, I think we can save Kolfin for later. Uh, right now, Bua is the important one. All right. So, Bua is the son of Andrid and Thurid, and mm-hmm. Thorstein is the son of Thorgrim and Arndis. 
Everyone right. Is- so these are the two couples from that double wedding. Exactly. Yes. Uh, so Thorsten and Bua are set up to have a relationship already. Now, Thorsten is described as an arrogant and aggressive man who thought that everything was beneath him. Thorsten is about six years older than Bua, and he's every bit as outspoken as his... (laughs) There's Bua now. (laughs) Uh, And he's every bit as outspoken as his father. As you said uh, earlier, this father and son team mix religious feeling with secular power, Mm -hmm. and so they enforce religious observation as a manifestation of that power. Sure, yeah. Uh, And meanwhile, Bua is... Bigger and stronger than other young men, and handsome to look at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's being raised by his foster mother, the widow and possible witch, Essia. See, is an interesting figure. Oh, and, and she has a mountain in the area named after her. Uh-huh. Uh, although it's very likely that she was named in this story in reference to the mountain, but uh, whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the this author's thing. Uh, so Essia came over with a boatload of Irish Christians and is living among them. But she has that witch rumor hanging over her. So this is an unusual mm-hmm. woman. And Boo is being raised by this unusual woman. Mm-hmm. And the same ambiguity about her religion is also true for Boo as well. Um, he doesn't make sacrifices of any kind to the gods and is heard to say that it's undignified to prostrate oneself in worship. Right. So he doesn't really fit in with paganism or Christianity then. True. But since the powerful men of the region are on the pagan side, he's going to have more trouble with them. Sure. Thorgrim and Thorsten start to speak out against him and give him the nickname of Boo the Dog. See, now that's a problem for me. What's everyone got against dogs? Dogs are awesome. But dogs generally don't make pagan sacrifices. <laughs> fair point. Very fair point. Oh, uh, you forgot to mention something else about Boo. What'd I forget? His weapon, or his lack thereof. What did I forget? Well, his weapon, or his lack thereof. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, Boo doesn't carry a sword or a spear. He carries a sling, which he wears tied around his uh, waist like a belt. Yeah, I should try that. It sounds like a kind of a comfy way to carry a weapon. Well, it is the weapon. Um, it, it sounds like a real problem if you're attacked suddenly, though, is what it sounds like. I mean, hold hey, on. if I'm going to die, I'm going to at least be dressed for comfort. Yeah, but if it's uh, your belt, then your pants are going to fall down right, as point. you take it off. <laughs> so in your last moments, issue. you lose your dignity and become a clown. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so uh, let's dive into this section. Uh, Thorgrim and Thorsten wait until Bua is 12. And when he still won't sacrifice, they charge him with false religion and prosecute him at their assembly, which is also held in their temple, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's declared a full outlaw, but he carries on as if nothing had happened. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. I mean, the religious question, obviously, but also mm-hmm. the abuse of power. I mean, Thorgrim is a chieftain, a Gothi, mm-hmm. and he's using his own assembly to prosecute the son of one of his own followers. Well, the son of his friend, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Remember, Thorgrim and Andred are blood brothers. Yeah, that's that's worth remembering that Thorgrim and Andrid mm-hmm. are blood brothers. Um, but we need to add betrayal to the list as well. Right. Uh, now, then there's also the questionable use of the law by the author. This saga, I would say, is not working from a deep knowledge of 10th century law. Right. This entire legal subplot feels pretty shaky to me. No, yeah, I, as I read along, I don't really trust this uh, author's knowledge of the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, so eventually... Thorsten Thorgrimson gets tired of Bua continuing to wander around the district as if he hasn't been outlawed. Yes. And he asks his father for permission to take some men and attack Bua when he's traveling between his parents' house and his foster mother, Esia's farm. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, Thorsten frames this to his father as a defense of the family's authority. Mm -hmm. It seems to me, father, that if you accept this disregard from your neighbors, 
Others will think nothing of breaking your commands or ignoring what we say. That's, a, that's quite a voice for an 18-year-old. Uh, <laughs> He's a big guy. Well, so Thorsten is framing Bua's defiance as a threat to Thorgrim's chieftaincy. Now, there's something to that. I mean, we've talked about the fragility of the chieftain's power before. Right? Mm-hmm. More Valgardison was an example of that. Sure, but this is a self-created problem. Mm-hmm. There wasn't really any need to prosecute Bua. It was an unnecessary exercise of power, which, again, put yeah. religious belief at the forefront. Sure. And now it, it risks making them look bad one way or the other. Absolutely. I and mean, if they ignore Bua now, they look weak. Right? They don't enforce their own judgments. Mm-hmm. But if they attack him, they risk the bad PR of killing a 12-year-old over a fairly petty legal matter. Yeah, well, they're definitely going to go for the killing a 12-year-old option because that makes the most (laughs) sense. And Thorsten's not joking around about this. Mm -hmm. Uh, He asks for some men and brings 11 of them with him to attack Bua. Right. And he lies in wait near Bua's parents' farm. Right. Meanwhile, Bua's mother, Thurid, begs him not to travel alone anymore. I mean, after all, Mm -hmm. he is under a sentence of outlawry. Yeah. Uh, Now, Bua promises to follow her wishes in the future, but for now, he'll go back to Essia's farm as planned. Mm -hmm. Alone, in other words. Isn't that an interesting feature of this saga that you got Bua who is fostered by a woman mm-hmm. and we have him and we've seen this before, but that idea of traveling back and forth between your mother's, your mm-hmm. parents' house and, and where you're being fostered and that deep relationship that develops between uh, each of those people. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so Bua doesn't get far before he spots Thorsten's party of 12 running toward him. He then races to a hill called Kleberg and that's where he gathers a handful of rocks and prepares himself. For a stand. Right. Now, again, he's not carrying any weapons other than his sling belt. Mm -hmm. Well, that's pretty much what Thorsten's gang is thinking. Right up until they hear the whistling of the sling and a rock slams into the chest of the lead man, killing him. (laughs) Well, look, it's still a sling. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's a weapon. People use them in battle. Clearly. I mean, after that, they advance much more carefully. Abua hits several more men, but not fatally. And they're advancing steadily on him, making Mm -hmm. progress. Right. Now, Bua has to retreat down the other side of the hill. And just as he does so, a darkness envelops the area so that no one can see. Yeah. Thorsten declares, uh, I've tried to do that voice you created now. We have our hands full now. What? When we have to deal with both a dog and a troll. That's so not we'll turn back for the present. It's a humiliating setback for him. That wasn't the voice at all. Well. <laughs> that was more conniving. Mine was deep and manly. <laughs> well, he's currently trying to beat up a 12-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> what grown man hasn't? <laughs> now, uh, here, here's a good question for you. Mm-hmm. Where did all that darkness come from? It said they couldn't see uh, yeah. in front of their toes, right? right? Right. It's a little strange for that to come out of nowhere. Some might mm-hmm. even say it was supernatural. It did seem supernatural, didn't it? It's mm-hmm. almost as if Bua knows a witch who can help him out. It does. And the text is being slightly coy about this, but I think we've been around long enough in the sagas to know the game's <laughs> up. Uh, when when Bua reaches Essia's farm, she says to him, Didn't you find yourself short of men for a while just now? There was no need for more. But you were completely on your own in this game. You weren't. Weren't completely on your own in this game. But you weren't completely on your own in this game. Well, I'm always glad of good help. So that's it, right? Can we uh, drop the pretense about Essia? She's uh, no, 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 don't say it. A witch? Because <laughs> she's a witch? <laughs> I know, I know. But the author's being really cagey about it. So we should try to maintain some ambiguity. I don't think he's that cagey, but uh, <laughs> it's a little late once the uh, dark cloud arrives. Right. 
Um, anyway, which help or no, Boo's got a problem to deal with. Thorsten isn't likely to give up, and he's going to be looking for revenge for the embarrassing failure of his first attack. I mean, is that really a problem? Boo's got magical help and a slingshot. What more does he need? He needs revenge, John. Oh. Thorsten did try to kill him. Well, true. Uh, and this is also one of the moments early on when we see a hint of a flaw in Boo's character. He's got a tendency to push things too far when his self-esteem has been bruised. Yeah, that's fair, and we should talk about that when we get to the second half of the saga. Mm. For now, Boo and Thorsten spend some time watching out for each other. Mm -hmm. And not in the good way. (laughs) Right, right, not looking out for each other. Yeah. One morning in late autumn, Boo spends the morning spying on Thorsten's home at Hof. He sees Thorsten leave the farmhouse and enter the temple to Thor all alone. Oh, Thorsten, alone? Well, Thor's there. Right, well, fair point. So Boo sneaks in after him and finds Thorsten lying face down on the floor, praying before a carved image of Thor. Then he grabs Thorsten by the shoulders and knees, lifts him high over his head, and then smashes him headfirst onto the stone carving. <laughs> yeah, the, the author does not spare the gore here. No. Uh, Thorstein's head is dashed on the stone so that the brains spilled across the floor. Yeah, uh, This is just brutal. I was surprised by this the first time I read it. I mean, I was expecting a little more out of Thorsten, first of all. More than brains out of him, you mean? You want viscera? (laughs) No. Uh, That's nasty. But I I, I mean, I thought he was going to be Boo's rival in the story. I thought there'd be a fight or something. Well, instead he gets to be Boo's second victim. And an early contender for best bloodshed, perhaps. Perhaps. Uh, Go ahead with the rest of this, because if there's an iconic scene in this saga, and that's a big if, this is it. Yeah, but yeah, okay. Uh, Bua tosses Thorstein's corpse outside against the wall mm-hmm. and then returns to the temple. He then fashions a torch, lights it from the sacred fire, and sets the wall hangings and furnishings on fire. Irony. He then locks the temple door, throws the keys into the flames, and goes off to proclaim the killing at a nearby farm. Mm. Oh, and he also locked the gate to access the uh, right, the church right. as well. So there's like a double lock. Mm. Thorgrim and his men arrive later at the fire to find Thorstein's corpse left up against the wall and the temple's an inferno. Mm-hmm. They managed to save some of the wood, which I thought was an interesting detail, yeah, yeah. by tearing the building apart with hooks, uh, but all the furnishings inside are lost. Yeah, I love that detail about the wood because it's just, it's such a, it's one of those moments when you remember just how precious a good beam was to oh, these yeah. people. Uh, just, uh, just the labor alone, not to mention the scarcity of it, but the yeah, labor of preparing absolutely. these beams. Uh, remember, this is, or, this is already, we didn't talk about it earlier, but these are already reused beams of wood when they're turned into the temple. That's uh, right. So this is some serious overkill, though. I mean, attacking Thorsten, I understand, but can we talk about whether or not this is murder? And then there's the burning of the Temple of Thor, which is another problem. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we're back to the religious subplot here, obviously. Right. Although at this point, it's really more of a main plot. Yeah, it's not a subtle moment. Uh, but, I mean, I'm left with some serious questions about Bua as a person and as a Christian. Yeah, because of this violence, the sneaking up. No, and- no, 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 no. Well, I, I mean, I guess that too. Uh, and the burning of the temple makes some sense if we read this as a pagan versus Christian narrative. Mm-hmm. But there's a reason Hamlet doesn't kill Claudius at his prayers. It's not just because of his fear that Claudius will go to heaven. Some things are just beyond bounds. But, I mean, this is a pagan temple and an icon of Thor. So for a Christian audience of the 14th century, that, that might not be a deal breaker. In fact, it's yeah. probably a good thing. Yeah, but the problem here is, for me, that he defies, it's not just that he defiles and burns the temple, he also breaks open Thorsten's skull so that his brains are dashed out on the holy stone on the altar. Mm. It's a pretty striking moment and one that isn't far from a hagiographic set piece. Wait a minute. 
Is this a Thomas Beckett argument? I'm not going to go quite that far. I'm Mm. saying that this is a motif that would be familiar to a Christian audience. But they'd be used to seeing the saint, the Christian, on the receiving end of the brutal death. And yes, Thomas Beckett is the most famous analog. Uh, Remember, Iceland is one of the places that produces a life of Thomas Beckett right after his death. So you're... you're I want to get this straight just so I'm clear and the audience can follow along. Uh-huh. You're comparing Thorsten, a pagan, praying at the temple of Thor mm-hmm. to Thomas Beckett, a revered Christian saint. I am. Uh, I'm saying that their deaths are similar enough that I can't imagine a late medieval audience wouldn't notice. Mm. This is the famous moment in Beckett's life, or rather his death, it is the moment when his brains spill out across the floor and the clerk, traveling with the four knights, scatters the brains across the floor with his foot. Hmm. Uh, so I don't think we're meant to beatify Thorsten, certainly. But I no. do think we should ask some serious questions about whether Bua is any more sympathetic a figure than Thorsten. Hmm. He's the one dashing somebody's brains out on an altar. Yeah. That's usually not the good guy in a medieval narrative. Quite right. Well, and I, part of it makes me wonder, is this is this author, you know, we talked earlier about him using multi, uh, a variety of sources. Mm-hmm. Does he just remember a cool scene like Thomas Beckett's right. murder and right. think, hmm, that's cool. So he's not thinking of the religious significance of it or anything like that. Just Quite possibly. The scene itself stands out to him. Right. And maybe he wasn't paying attention when he heard it. Right. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't even know <laughs> or, who the good guy is. Or as you say, it's just, it's a motif thing, right? It's a, this right. is a, you know, a shocking moment, but one that would ring sort of with some familiarity for an audience. And all of this brings us back to the point about the status of this killing. Mm-hmm. Um, Buid does report the killing at the at a nearby farm, but that's about the only aspect of this thing that's legal in my eyes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he attacks Thorsten unawares. He does nothing to protect the body. And mm-hmm. no matter what his motives for burning the temple may be, it looks like he's trying to conceal elements of the crime. Yeah, it's a pretty damning case. I mean, Buid's definitely got some things to answer for. He should be out. Oh, he's already... Yeah, see, there's the thing, right? What does he have to lose? He's already under full outlawry because of this guy. Right, yeah. What's going to happen? So, uh, well, the first thing he's got to do is survive the aftermath of what he's done, which probably isn't going to be easy. It's not a great situation. As we said, he's already an outlaw, so anything his enemies do to him is legally acceptable. Mm -hmm. And he's given Thorgrim about the most perfect justification possible for violent revenge. Yeah, well, the good news for Boo is that he's still got Ezia the Witch on his side. You keep calling her that. We haven't proven anything. Well, how's this for proof, John? She's the master of the cloud. Yeah. <laughs> when, when Bua returns home, uh, Ezia takes him up to uh, up a mountain path to a cave that she's already prepared for him. Mm-hmm. It has food, clothes, provisions, bedding, and a spring for bathing in, which is perfect. Oh, that's nice. It sounds pretty nice, actually. Yeah, it does. This spot is called Lagarnipa, which uh, which means warm spring airy or or bath peak. Okay, that's not proof of witchcraft, Andy. That's proof of doomsday prepping, but not witchcraft. <laughs> You're hard to please. I was getting there. So Ezia sets the stage for the visit that she knows is coming from Thorgrim. Mm-hmm. So remember, uh, Boo is not there, uh, but she goes right. back to the house where she knows people are going to come and look. What she does is throw a heap of wet peat on the fire in her home so that the house mm. fills with the smoke and a rotting stink. And when Thorgrim arrives with his nephews, Helgi and Vak Ongrimsen, and 27 other men in toes. 30 is, men. Jeez. Yeah. The house is so full of smoke that they can't see a thing inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as is not finished, right before she goes out to greet them, she throws garbage and bits of horn onto the fire as well, just to make sure that it's good and reeking. Yeah. How's that for magic, huh? <laughs> well, I mean, that's one way to get rid of unwanted company. 
Yeah. I love the smell of burnt horn in the morning. It smells like napalm and therefore by the transitive property like victory. You should be ashamed of yourself. (laughs) So Thorgrim and his posse demand that Bua be turned over to them. We want you to hand over Bua the dog, your foster son, so we can give him the horrible death he's earned. (laughs) Sounds like a charmer. So Ezia denies (laughs) having seen him that day, which is a lie. And when Thorgrim demands to search the house, she replies, Now, I recall that Helgi Bjolan, your father's dead. My house would never be searched if he had anything to say about it. And Thorgrim insists on searching the house anyway, but with the stinking smoke filling the place, he he and his men can't see anything. And so he has to go away empty-handed and furious, and has to look for some other way to take revenge on, uh, on Bua for his son's death. Mm. And Ezia presumably begins the long process of airing out her house. Yeah, it's a real chore once that burning garbage smell gets into the upholstery. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, before we move on to Thorgrim's revenge, here's a question. Yeah. Why does Ezia shame Thorgrim by mentioning his father? I mean, aside from just suggesting that Thorgrim's not the man his father was. Well, I mean, that is a nice dig at Thorgrim. I mean, telling an Icelander that his father would be ashamed of him is kind of a major blow. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also a reminder of a theme we've seen before in the sagas, right? The original settlers made room for one another. Usually, that's portrayed as having been more or less amicable. Yeah, well, that's not a universal truth, but it does make sense, right? People mm-hmm. naturally gravitate to where their friends are, or at least where they're likely to find a peaceful reception. Sure. I thought they went where their uh, high sea pillars drifted, Andy. Sure, that too. It just happens mm-hmm. to often land where your friends are. Sure. Oh, no. But it, it is logical that in an open land with few people, there, w- there was no reason to fight over land claims in the first few years of the settlement. Mm-hmm. N- not that that stopped all the conflicts, but this pattern right. does show up a lot. The early arrivals look for ways to get along. Right. Now, the fighting comes in the second or third generation. As space gets a little tighter, mm-hmm. resources get scarcer, and different families try to extend their power and dominance. Yeah. And we're seeing that play out in this family and in this region. Helge Bjolan in the first generation offered land both to his Norwegian friends and to the Irish Christians who came to the island and became his friends. Thorgrim, his son, treats his social prominence and his religious observance as two parts of a single claim to dominance and grumbles about these Irish Christians as an unnecessary strain on the local resources. And his son Thorsten pushes that further and begins a campaign of legal and violent attacks on people in the region if they fall afoul of either the social or the religious aspects of his family's claim to prominence. Yeah, and as the son of an Irish immigrant and a man who refuses to sacrifice or support Thorgrim's temple, Bull was a walking target for Thorstein's bullying. Pretty much. Yeah, I like that. So we saw something similar play out back in Erbidja saga between the Thorsnesings and the Kjallaklings, yeah. uh, with religious difference providing a pretext for a power struggle. I mean, that one came to a head over a protest involving dozens of people all pooping on a, a, a hilltop at once. But, but still, <laughs> the analogy, I think, is valid. <laughs> uh-huh. um, now, a number of other sagas have a similar story at their core, although without the pooping. All right. But if we assume that the author is following that logic, not the poop logic, but the other, mm-hmm. uh, we, we should also remember that Thorgrim and his brother Arngrim once declared themselves blood brothers with Bua's father, Andrit. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, their father was alive back then, but it still means that this conflict takes on a tragic tone. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, that's going to make what happens next so much worse. Yeah. Because with Bua hidden away in his doomsday bunker cave, Thorgrim needs another target for his revenge. And Bua's only relatives are his parents, Andrid and Thurid. 
Um, John, there's something really yeah. interesting that happens when Thorgrim decides to go um, uh, seek revenge elsewhere. It's something that I don't remember seeing in the sagas elsewhere. Um, Thorgrim, as he's riding to his home, says to his men, All this affects me so much that my anger must find some other outlet. Mm. I'll go to Brauterholt and kill Andrid. Yep. Now, I don't recall any other saga where uh, a character gives voice to anger, names his anger. Right, right. Admits that his emotion is overwhelming him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. He, he knows this isn't the right thing to do, but he's so affected by the right. by the moment, he names he names it I think and, what's then, and decides yeah. to act on it. I mean, for me, what's interesting about it, uh, or what the reason that it shows up in the saga, I think, is to give... Uh, Arndrim's sons, uh, Helgi and Vok, the chance to say, no, it's a shameful thing to kill an old man. Uh, and for him to say, nope, I'm going to do it. But I think, yeah. you're, but you're right. The fact that it's framed as a brimming over of anger, of emotion, yeah. uh, makes it a fairly unusual moment. Yeah, definitely for the sagas. They, they, they keep that, those emotions under wrap, or at least not, mm-hmm. they, they're not voiced, but here, um, yeah. here very much so. So I'll let the saga describe what happens. They rode to Brauterholt. And there was no one to protect Andrith from being taken out from his high seat and dragged outside. His wife Thor had offered money for her husband, but to no avail. Thorgrim ordered a man to kill him, and Andrith bore himself well at his death. And after that, they rode away. Ah, that's awful. Yeah. Uh, and, and he doesn't even kill him himself. He can't, right? They're blood brothers. And so he yeah. has to order someone else to do it. Mm-hmm. But now if I know anything about sagas, and I think I do, this will set up an absolutely epic revenge once Bua finds out what's happened. Get your popcorn ready, folks. This is going to be brutal. Um, maybe? Part 3. The Wooing of Olaf the Fair. <laughs> okay, so uh, that big, brutal revenge, the <laughs> epic battle you were promising. Uh, Section 3, The Wooing. <laughs> so no revenge story here is there no i know i know it's it's ridiculous uh there's nothing this saga suddenly screeches to a halt and starts again with the story of bua and two rivals all seeking to marry olaf kala daughter mm-hmm. bua thorgrim and the author all seem to forget that we were right in the middle of a violent feud Right. But you know, you get that jarring effect when a a chapter begins. During the same autumn, a ship arrived from across the sea. The skipper was Ord, a Norwegian from Vik by origin. Total shift in scene and substance. The thing is that, you know, I I would accept that this is just a, you know, it's a digression and that the saga will later on wrap up the story, except that it never does. Well, you're spoiling everything now, but you're not. I mean, we're, yeah, we're going to, I'm spoiling the fact that there isn't going to be anything to spoil. Uh, later on, we'll see, Thorgrim will return to the story much later on, but mm-hmm. there's no result from the fact that yeah. Bua and Thorgrim have killed one another's son and father, respectively. Exactly. Yeah. All we're really told is that when Essia tells Bua about his father's death, he replies that an old tree can be expected to fall. Uh, and later, when Bua is openly traveling in the district, Thorgrim does nothing about it because he considers the killing of Andrith's father to have made his point. It's a complete damp squib. <laughs> it's a damp squid, I believe. <laughs> squib. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. That was, uh, I think it was in um, IT Crowd that they, they had a big joke about the damp squid. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. There's your IT Crowd reference for people yeah. who watch that thing that I haven't watched. Go. Keep the ball rolling, John. Mm-hmm. Well, the consolation 
is that we now get the story of the three lovers of Olaf. And oh, they're great. quite a group. So now we're into a romance. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's start with Olaf herself. Of course, yeah. Uh, we mentioned Olaf earlier. She's the daughter of Kali and Thorgerd of Kalafjord. Well, I want to make sure we're not saying Olaf. No, no, it's not Olaf. It's Olaf. But that's what you're saying. I, I'm from New York. A's and O's get tangled up. We also right. say New York. New uh, York. Which is not New York. Uh, All right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how do you say the uh, the name of the snowman in Frozen? I have not seen that movie. What's the snowman's name? O-L-A-F? Olaf. And how do you say O-L-O-F? Olaf. Sounds very similar to me. <laughs> That's you, the problem. You... <laughs> That's the problem. I'm trying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, anyway, I am saying different words, but I realize that the vowels are coming out the same way. Uh, so... Olaf is the daughter of Kali and Thorgerd of Kalafjord. Uh, she's the most desired match in the district. She's mainly known for her beauty, but she's also a good conversationalist. You're just making that last part up, aren't you? No, I'm inferring it. Inferring mm-hmm. it is making things up with sources, Andy. Uh, what we know is that there's a small crush of people around her at social gatherings, so much so that there's some jostling going on among her suitors. So they must all be fascinated by what she's saying, right? I think that we'll have to uh, tease this out over the course of the episode. <laughs> I'm not sure that's true. Yeah. Uh, but the suitors include three men that we will have to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. The first is a Norwegian skipper named Orn. Mm-hmm. Uh, he comes to stay with Coley. I think I mentioned him at the yep. opening of the chapter. Yep. And uh, he begins showering attention on Olaf. Uh, Orn's a successful merchant, and Coley wants to impress him, so he convenes a games gathering at his farm. Right. Now, one of the men who comes to the games is Bua, of course. He doesn't actually want to go at first. And when Essia tells him that Orn is likely to win Olaf if Bua doesn't do something about it, Bua just says, Well, she deserves a good match. You come up with pretty gutless language sometimes, seeing that I have this woman in mind for you. I want you to go to the games and risk your life if necessary. Oh, Tough See, mother. Now, Bua may be a tough guy when it comes to killing men in prayer, but he's he's not much for standing up to Essia. Uh, so he ties his sling around his waist and heads to the games. And when he gets there, he finds three men on a bench with Olaf. Orn sits on one side of her, and there are two other men sitting on her other side. Olaf is talking with Orn, so while she's distracted, Bua yanks the other two guys off the bench and takes their place. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a smooth courtship move right there. Excuse me, boys. I've got to talk to this lady. <laughs> well, Bua is not a subtle man. Uh, I'd like to know what those two guys end up doing for the rest of the saga. I'd like to follow their story. <laughs> kind of in well, the I corner, grumbling. Slink off the into the shadows. Uh, so uh, now Bua and Orn take turns talking to Olaf, who seems content to let them both try to impress her. Mm-hmm. And neither of them bothers keeping his voice down. So each can hear the other's attempts to win her attention. But this isn't the entire scene. No. Uh, there's another man sitting in a chair opposite Olaf, uh, staring awkwardly at her and not saying anything at all. <laughs> and his name is Colfin of Vatten. Yeah. Uh, do you want to explain about Colfin? Yeah, I think we might have mentioned him briefly earlier. But mm-hmm. Colfin is a tall, ugly, long-legged man in the region with black hair and a rather scruffy appearance. And he lives at home with his parents and sits around all day watching the kettles boil, it says. Mm-hmm. And at one point, the author even notes that he likes to lay by the hearth and chew the bark of charred wood. <laughs> so he's literally a coal biter. 
Literally, yes. yes. It almost reads like this writer had heard the term coal biter, but didn't know it wasn't a literal description. Right. <laughs> I think it actually is literal here, right? I mean, there's something a little bit off socially about Colfin. And mm-hmm. this kind of behavior is one of the indicators that uh, his belfry might be short a few bats. So you, you think he's just socially awkward? No, no, I don't. Uh, we'll get to that later. All right. So so Colfin's mother, Thorgard, shames Colfin just like Essia did to Bue. Uh, you want to take this one? Uh, sure. There's a great difference between what men are born in the world for and what they become known for. Two men are at Cullifjord competing for Olaf the Fair. But you're so sluggish that you lie by the fire, a distress to your mother. It would be better if you were dead than to know such a disgrace in our family. You're quite excited now, mother. But things will soon get better. Is, is that Colfin's voice? <laughs> It is now. He sounds <laughs> bored. I mean, he's, he's mumbling around a mouthful of coal. <laughs> That's right. So Colfin eventually, I'm just working with the description that I got, right? Sure. So Colfin eventually gets up and gets ready to go. He puts on a hooded cloak slowly and ties the sides between his legs. And he's also wearing baggy pants with calfskin shoes. And he carries a staff with him, which he throws ahead of himself and then runs to pick up again. Kind of right. like a little kid. Yeah. Now, and in case anyone is unclear about the correct attire for attending a social event in 10th century Iceland, this ain't it. Uh, (laughs) Colfin looks ridiculous, and people are just confused when he shows up and sits down opposite Olaf. Mm -hmm. And that's how these three attempt to woo Olaf. Orn the Norwegian and Boo the dog on either side of her and taking turns talking, while the strangely dressed Colfin stares at her. Yeah, it's amazing she doesn't get up and run screaming out of the room. Yeah, it's quite an image, and it goes on for days. <laughs> and Olaf is polite to all three, but doesn't seem to favor any one of them, which yeah. seems reasonable. Right. Uh, Orn is the first one to blink. Uh, he talks to Olaf's father and says, Look, it's bearable, although bad, that Bua acts the way he does with Olaf. But that filthy man who sits here and listens all day, <laughs> I'm through putting up with it. Now, remember, Olaf's dad wants Orn for a son-in-law, so now he's got to do something. Mm -hmm. And what he does is say that Orn is free to do what he likes about it. Well, that's decisive action. Yeah. (laughs) So this means he's essentially condoning Orn attacking one or both of the others. True. Yeah. True, but why not not just ask him to leave? Why are they going to jump right into attacking him physically? You know, this makes a certain amount of uh, sense if you ignore the ethics of violence completely. Yeah. So, Coley, Olaf's father, has a difficult situation here. Mm -hmm. Now, he likes Orn as a son-in-law, and Boo is at least a man of some ability. But Colfin's got a lousy reputation as a layabout, and his behavior is somewhere between goofy and menacing. Mm -hmm. So, if we're invested in redeeming Coley at all, and I'm not sure we are... (laughs) But if, if we are, then this can be read as Coley's way of protecting his daughter from Colfin. Yeah, I don't even know whether we need to push it that far. I think Coley just wants Orn to win out and doesn't much care how it happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, but whatever the case, Orn and his servant take that as permission. They grab their weapons and they set themselves for an ambush against Colfin that very evening. Yeah. And when Colfin comes walking along with his pole, they attack. But it turns out that Colfin actually knows how to fight with a stick. Uh, He holds them off for a while, then knocks the servant out cold. Orn attacks again, but Colfin grabs the servant's sword and shield and returns the fight. Hmm. After a short battle, Orn is killed, but Colfin is badly wounded. He staggers away, leaving the servant alive to cover the body. 
Ah, uh, wait now. Hang mm-hmm. on. Yes. That servant? He's a Norwegian, isn't he? Uh, I assume so, yes. Uh-oh. Guys, <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. I see. Uh-huh. He, he's a Norwegian companion who survives. That's a rare breed in the sagas. Yeah, I'm not sure of the logistics here. Is he the Norwegian companion? I mean, Orn's from Norway as well. Why isn't he the companion? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm going to count it. He's clearly the companion. Mm. We, I mean, we don't even learn his name. And I believe he's wearing a red shirt. <laughs> no, no, he's not wearing a red shirt. But uh, he, he's a companion in my book. All right, all right. Uh, so we've got one surviving Norwegian companion. Uh, yeah, anyway, Colfin barely survives the encounter. Uh, he has to ford a freezing river in his escape and eventually makes it to his mother's brother's house, his uncle Korbolf, mm-hmm. uh, where he spends a long time healing from his wounds. And frostbite, presumably. Yeah, quite possibly, yes. Hmm. Korbolf. Yeah, Korpolf. Korpolf. It's not a name you hear often, but it's I know. fun to say. It sounds a little like a Pokemon, but uh, that might just be me <laughs> because my older son is obsessed with them right now. Yeah. Uh, anyway, with Orn dead and Colfin laid up at Korpolf's house, uh, Korpolf. Bua has a clear path to Olaf. The only problem is that she doesn't show him any more favor than before. Yeah, Olaf is an enigma. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's got a bit of the same problem as Helga in Gunlog Saga. You mean she doesn't really exist as an entity in the saga? Unless and until the author needs her for a plot point. More or less, yes. Yeah. The plight of women in the sagas. Uh-huh. At least some women. Uh, the main difference here is that she's actually part of the story. I mean, yeah. Helga kept vanishing from the narrative completely. Olaf's here, at least for sections. And so her lack of agency is a, a bit more problematic part of the story for mm. me. Yeah, so, so partial erasure of her character is more of a problem than total erasure. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure I can back that up, but it seems to be the problem. Uh, so, while Bua is pursuing his unrequited interest in Olaf, Colfin is recovering from his injuries. And when he's all healed up, he announces his, ret- his intention to return to Kali's farm. He's decided that he actually likes Olaf. His uncle gives him a decent outfit, a sword, and his son, Grim Korpolfsson, as a companion. Now, did anyone check with Grim about this? Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, and that'll come up much later. Uh, but for now, the two of them visit Colfin's mother, Thorgerd. And when he tells his mom that he now intends to win Olaf by eliminating Bua, she responds, This idea of coming to blows with Bua is not promising in view of Esia's sorcery and Bua's toughness. Wait, Esia's a witch? I didn't know about that. <laughs> I don't think we have any proof of that. No. Uh, he says, There are two sides to every danger. Oh, wait, is this, <laughs> this is uh, Corfin, Colfin, Corfin, right? Yeah. There are two sides to every danger. I'll either live or I'll die. <laughs> that does seem to cover the available options. It does. Wasn't Thorgard the one pushing Colfin to go after Olaf in the first place? I mean, since yeah. when did she get so concerned? She said, risk your life, right? Well, she wanted him to... No, that was uh, that was Yeah, Essie. that was the other one. Uh, yeah. She wanted him to woo Olaf. No one said anything about trying to kill all his rivals. Hmm. Well, oops. <laughs> it's interesting that everyone in the story not only sees Essia as the greater threat, but mm. that they assume that Bua is going to benefit from her magic, which well, is logical. She's, she's a foster mother to him. Right? Mm-hmm. We haven't seen a lot of these foster mother-son relationships, but the mother-son relationship and the ability of a mother to bestow magical protection on her son, well, that's a trope of pan-Germanic and Scandinavian literature. Yeah, well, we've seen it a few times already. I mean, Vatn's Saga had one example. Mm-hmm. Njall's Saga did as well. Right. And for that matter, so does Beowulf, right, with uh, Grendel's immunity to weapons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while we're on the subject, Harry Potter gets exactly the same kind of protection from Lily Potter. 
So you just dropped a Harry Potter reference into our saga podcast. That's right. I'm a complete madman. <laughs> so the problem <laughs> is that Thorgerd wanted Colvin to win Olaf by what? His his charming personality and uh, mm-hmm. sense of style? Absolutely. But but now that <laughs> Dashing it's look- good looks. Yeah. Now that it's looking like a fight, she's worried about Essia interfering? Well, it's a fair concern. So let's look at this. Uh, in the morning, Colfin and Grimm walk to Collie's farm, where they find Bua continuing his attentions to Olaf. That poor woman. It must be exhausting. <laughs> I know, I know. You're, you're speaking here as uh, Colfin. Yeah. You, you have two choices. <laughs> One is that you break off your visits here, and the other is that you fight a duel with me tomorrow on the little island in Lair of Olsa. You know what's killing me about this is that your Colfin sounds like he's constantly about to yawn. <laughs> well, the less equal the choice, the easier it is to choose. Who's this? I've made my own decisions about coming here, and I mean to continue. So I'll grant you a duel as soon as you like. Bua sounds strange. Well, he's got a bit of a deviated septum. <laughs> <laughs> All right, these poor characters. All right, well... I mean, he, he he set it up pretty nicely. I think the mm-hmm. problem solved. They can right. fight it out man to man, except that neither of them really seems to have asked Olaf how she feels about this whole thing. Sure. And Essia is still lurking in the background. Well, those are both valid concerns. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's deal with the second one first. That same night, Essia spends the entire night casting spells on Bua. She bathes him, runs her hands over every bone of his body, and sleeps beside him all night. Hmm. She then dresses him in the morning and sends him off to the duel. So clearly he's going to be under her protection during the fight. I love it. It's yeah. it's kind of cool because we get so much more here than we do in like a Vatensdala saga or yeah. any of the other descriptions yeah. of this kind of protection. Mm-hmm. We, yeah, we yeah. see how it actually works. Yeah. This is about when this saga takes a really interesting turn for me because we're now seeing the relationship between Bua and Essie from the outside. And for me at least, it's clear that they're really more traditionally the antagonists of a saga narrative. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in any other story, Colfin's the coal biter who grows into his strength and shapes his own fate. And mm-hmm. who is the Absolutely. local bully who's backed by his mother's magic? Yeah, exactly. No, and it creates something interesting in this story, which is that it's not at all clear whose side we're meant to be on. Uh, which also might be a reason to withhold information about Olaf's preferences, by the way. Hmm. It creates a kind of narrative suspense about how the story is meant to go. Yeah. All right. So let's get to this duel. Be my guest. So to start, this is a duel to first blood, not to the death. Right. And we've got the throwing down of the cloak and there's a financial penalty to either combatant if they step off the cloak. And they're going to take turns striking blows with Bua going first as the challenged party. Right. Now, if people are interested in the details of how a duel like this would be arranged and conducted, we covered a lot of the rules of dueling back in Saga Brief 2 a few years back. We should link to that in the episode description for this, by the way. Yeah, we should. Let's do it together. <laughs> All right. Uh, carry on with the duel. There's a crowd gathered to watch the duel, and both men look promising and strong. Hey, free entertainment. That's right. Absolutely free. But these types of duels with blows traded in turn and first blood ending the fight also tend to be rather short. Mm-hmm. And this is no exception. Now, I can just read the whole thing here. Uh, put your feet up, people. <laughs> Boa struck a blow at Colfin. Colfin met it with his shield, but the blow cut away the shield on one side of the handle. After that, Colfin struck a similar blow at Bua. Bua's second blow rendered Colfin's shield useless and gave him a great wound on the arm. Colfin was then out of the fight. Now, 
Read that in a Howard Cosell voice and you've got a really snappy play-by-play. Buis struck the blow at Colfin. Colfin <laughs> met it with his shield, but the blow cut away the shield on one side of the handle. After the is Colfin- that your is this your is this your <laughs> Howard his, Cosell voice? On on a, at, at a drop of a hat, that's what I came sure. up with. I'm really trying to more channel the the Asian fellow in uh, Better Off Dead than the actual Howard Cosell. Oh, the guy doing the impression. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, with the drag racing. Right. What a shame. <laughs> Colfin was then out of the fight. Sure. So, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if we want to just turn it in now. I mean, we've, we've probably shamed ourselves into just I believe quitting. we have, yes. <laughs> anyway, the, the, that's it. I mean, that's the whole story. Mm-hmm. Colfin once again goes to his uncle Corpulf. To heal up. <laughs> and Bua goes from the duel directly to Kolofjord, where he finds Olaf and tells her that he's tired of walking all the way up there to see her every day. Oh, he's such a romantic. He is. <laughs> this day, I will not return to my cave alone. You <laughs> must come with me this time. This will greatly displease my father. Well, he will not be asked. Wow. <laughs> Just bringing her back to your cave, Bua. Classy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not great. No. <laughs> but hey, it's a nice cave, and Olaf finally spoke to him. <laughs> so, Andy, where are we on consent here? It's not I mean, good. <laughs> I think these are the, these are the first words we hear Olaf actually speak, and she just says that her father won't approve of Bua abducting her, which is mm-hmm. what he's doing, and bringing her to his cave. His cave. I can't get over this. And the next thing she says is in response to Essia welcoming her, and this is reported speech, and she just says that Bua will have to decide her lodgings for now. Yeah. Can we make any informed guesses about Olaf's degree of consent in this marriage? I mean, if we could even call it a marriage. Um, It's definitely not right? a marriage or even a formal betrothal. <laughs> mm-hmm. Taking a woman without the consent of her father is a big no-no in my right. opinion. Uh, but I think Olaf is is willing to go here. Mm-hmm. She's allowed Bua to visit constantly and is right. clearly interested in him. And given her father's attitude, he's unlikely to ever say yes to Bua and Olaf being together. So right. I mean, this is a convenient, if extremely problematic, loophole, but it works. Mm-hmm. It's not good for Olaf's reputation. I'll say that. Right. It's it's, it's not a comfortable situation, no matter how yeah. you look at it. Yeah. Well, and, and later on in the saga, we do get a moment when she actively, uh, when we were told that she actively does not approve of something that happens to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but yeah, you're and, right. And the, I think there's, it's well said. There's no, there's no real, not only consent here, but there's no obvious concern for consent. Yeah. Well, and the the, the real question here is, uh, does Aeneas marry Dido, or is that the concern? Yeah. Well, they, you <laughs> run off to cave to sure. knock boots. Sure. <laughs> uh, no, so moving on. Now that the possibly happy couple has returned to Bua's cave under the watchful eye of Essia, everything's great, right? Happy endings all around, except possibly for Olaf. I'm going to go with she does like him. And is I willing. think she, I think of her options, you know, once Orn is dead, I think yeah. that she's being very neutral about him until Orn is removed as a possibility. I think so too. Anyway, but Colfin is still alive. We do, we do need to remember that. Yeah, this and other guy's takes, out there. He takes a winter to recover from his dueling wound, but once his arm is healed, he's right back coming for Bua. Right. And this time, he follows his uncle Pokemon's advice and brings a crew of 15 men with him to try and kill Bua outright. Ah. And now it's time for a great big showdown between two rivals. 
Mm. The saga disappointed us earlier with Thorsten, Andy, but this is classic one man against an army stuff. Yeah, well, not exactly. No. <laughs> Colfin arrives at the cave but finds that Essia has posted two guards near the cave in a good defensive position. Mm-hmm. Oh, that witchcraft again. <laughs> Yes, the witchcraft of hiring guys and giving them swords. Exactly. Just like the witchcraft of throwing peat on a a fire. Now, rather than try to force his way past them, he calls out, If Bua Bua can hear my words, and if he has the courage of a man and not a she-beast, then let him come down from that narrow path above. She-beast? Colfin's new at smack talk. He's working on it. Give him a chance. <laughs> well, Bua's not about to be called a she-beast, whatever that means. Uh, Olaf tries to she. stop him. Well, <laughs> uh, but Bua grabs his weapons and is on his way out of the cave when he's suddenly blinded by a migraine. What? He's forced to drop his weapons and stay in the cave, presumably put a cold compress over his face, and eventually Colfin gives up and goes away. So, uh, a migraine, eh? Yeah. I think that's what's being described. Uh, The text says he was seized by such a pain in both eyes that he had to squeeze them with his two hands. Hmm. It sounds like a migraine to me. I mean, that's, yeah, but that's not what I mean. I mean, that's not really a migraine. Mm -hmm. Bua and Olaf both suspect that Essia caused this pain through a spell to stop Bua from leaving the cave and getting himself killed. See, everyone's just accepting that she's a witch now, right? It's just, it's all scurrilous rumor. John. She is a witch. <laughs> she hired those guys. Right. I think just Fair anyone enough. could do that. She threw garbage on a fire. Yes. But she's also probably right that Bua would have gotten slaughtered if he'd gone out to face Colfin. Yeah. I, I, but I like the way this uh, shows a different way of thinking about these feuds. Mm-hmm. Ezio's ideas about honor and winning a fight are obviously different from Bua's. Right. From her perspective, the temporary loss of honor from not responding to Colfin's taunts are a trade-off that allows Bua to live to fight another day. But for Bua, his reputation requires that he answer every challenge to his honor, no matter the cost. I don't think this is so much about a male versus female way of seeing these fights, uh, because we have seen plenty of women who've calculated honor through bloodshed as well. Oh, absolutely. It's almost more about the ways that honor is calculated by those on the inside of Icelandic culture, as as opposed to the mar- a marginal figure like a Christian witch with no immediate family. Absolutely. Essia's already excluded from the game of honor in many ways, so it doesn't really enter her calculations for the smartest move in a given situation. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it means that we have another damp squib to end this section. (laughs) Colfin and Bua are both still alive, and we've lost the momentum of another feud. Yeah, and that, frustratingly, is where we have to end it. But this isn't where the saga ends. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the second half of Kjalnasinga Saga. And there's plenty more ahead. Remember, Boo is still under a sentence of outlawry. He's got, although he can go wherever he wants. So well, barely. Apparently. Yeah. He's got two deadly enemies in Colfin and Thorgrim Gothi. And he's living in a cave with a woman he abducted from her father's house. Right. Now, on top of that, in the second half, we'll have another abduction, several marriages, a trip to Norway, and a seriously weird journey to the mythical world of King Djofri the game-loving ruler under Diothrafell Mountain. What? But for now, Andy, you've got a move to complete. Uh, I kind of want to just keep going with the saga. It's, <laughs> it's like every section is a completely different genre. Oh, I know. It's the, it's the strangest. I mean, you know, we said at the beginning it's a pastiche, and that's absolutely right. Yeah. 
Anyway, next time we record, I will be speaking to you live, recorded from Oxford, Mississippi, where I will mm. be reunited at long last with the other half of my family. Uh, and I think our next episode will also include the winners of our Promote Saga Thing contest. Ah, yes, yes. We've got top men at work right now tallying the uh, the numbers, determining the winners. What men? Top men. They're all tops. Wonderful. <laughs> I can't wait to hear how that goes. Uh, until then, please share your thoughts on Kelmasing a Saga with us. What is the author up to with all this religious subtext? Will we ever find out what Olaf thinks about anything? Are we supposed to be rooting for Bua or against him? It's a good question. Uh, you can get in touch with us on Twitter. Which is Saga Thing Pod. Or on Facebook. Where we are Saga Thing Podcast. Or leave a comment on our website, which is sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com. Or you can send a bottle full of refrigerated air to Andy in Mississippi. He is gonna need it. Ooh, it's hot down. Good luck with the move, my friend. Thanks. We'll be back soon. And until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now. Is it a squirrel or is it? Hold on, there's a really remarkable squirrel. I'm going to have to see this. It's gone already. I miss everything. See what this podcast takes from me? I know. The ability to see squirrels. The sacrifices I give to you people. It's it's ridiculous. It's hard um, being you.